Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Sea Trade Maritime and Shipping Podcast. You're listening to a mini-series called Hong Kong Focus, which has kindly been sponsored by Invest HK. This series is made up of three parts, and each one is looking more in-depth at a different area of the Hong Kong maritime trade, and seeing where we are in 2020 and how COVID-19 has affected its place within the shipping world. Each episode is moderated by our editor, Marcus Hand, who I'm sure is a familiar voice to you by now. And on today's episode, he is joined by Bjorn Hogard, who is the CEO of Anglo Eastern Univan Group, which is a company that manages vessels. Marcus and Bjorn navigate through a whole wide range of topics around ships and the types of disruptions that have occurred within 2020, and actually how this can be seen as a positive thing, not only for his company, but for the industry as a whole. Now, Marcus and Bjorn, they chatted via Microsoft Teams. So let me take you to the point where Marcus has just asked Bjorn how he had to adapt his company. The big thing that's changed is obviously the inability of the executing crew change. I think it was the 23rd of March. We pretty much closed down everywhere. We had been closed in China a few weeks before that. Mm. The 23rd of March, it was uh, game over for crew chains. And for the better part of April and the first part of May, we hardly did any crew chains. Then we started opening up a little bit in Indian ports and in Manila itself, etc. And then since mid-May, we've seen a steady improvement in the situation. We're still far from ideal, but at the top of this crew change crisis, we had 7,000 people who were overdue out of uh, close to 16,000 in the fleet. In the last two, two and a half months, even though there's been a continuous buildup of people getting overdue, we've been able to reduce the number. So today we are something like 1,500 people on board the ships who still need to get changed in the next few weeks. But 550 out of 656 have executed crew chains in the last couple of months. And when we had the chance, we did a lot. Right? So it was like almost full crews at the time right. to make sure that we had some longevity. So that's been the biggest single change and challenge. And that's been what's focused us all. In addition to that, of course, arranging service engineers, arranging vessel inspections, all these kind of things have also been very, very strained. Do you see this as sort of accelerating the use of technology in, in ship management and the running of ships? I think it is an accelerator of technology. I mean, the ability to be able to do things on the fly has become exponentially more important, right? So, you know, some of the technologies that will assist them are cloud-based, these always on technologies that I think we are an industry are all transitioning towards. And then of course meetings, communications, being able to meet up in a virtual space. Again, necessity is the mother of invention. I don't think I would have considered having crew conferences before with three hundred people on WebEx. And today we do that. You know, it's proven to be 
uh, better, faster, more immediate means of reaching out to people if there's something to talk about. Right? You know, before COVID-19, it would be a, at least a three-month process to arrange a conference for 300 people. Now, it's a matter of days of getting um, invitations sent up, putting up agendas, presentations, and locking in a couple of hours to uh, discuss a certain topic with a certain group of offices. Similarly, our meetings, as a humanity of the offices, 25 different places across the globe, having these new tools, teams, WebEx, enable us to get together. We could have video conferences before. They were just not sort of uh, the natural reaction to things. It was harder to set up. It took a bit more time and it was more difficult. Now it's on the same screen, pretty good connections, and if you have that immediacy to things, which I think is a boon to the industry. On the remote inspection and remote order side of things, I think that's also here to stay. Not that I believe physical inspections and orders will not come back, but I think that the future, you'll be able to do a lot of things remotely prior to actually going on board the ship. Interrogate certificates, various paperwork online before you actually go on board so that you don't spend time physically on the ship going through all that stuff and you've done that prior to growing and then you focus your time on board on doing the stuff that where the physical person really adds value. I think some of these things are changing and will stay. Just coming back to the crew change part, you said at the peak of it you had 16,000 to change over. Where are you at now with that? So today we have about 1,500 who are overdue. Right. So it's like less than 10% on just under 100 ships. There are still some ships. We need to find a port where we can do these two changes. You know, again, experience. The first few months of this, we had our global personnel department teams working from home with standard operating procedures being out the door. It was all invent the wheel from scratch because you had to charter planes, you had to get permissions you're not used to, you had to pool across companies, etc., to effect these changes. You had to learn how to eat support. In Hong Kong, you can do crew change today if your ship is here for cargo operations. In China, you can do crew change if it's Chinese. In Korea, you can do crew change if you allow onsiders a two-week quarantine in Korea before they board the ship. In Japan, you can do crew change if... Uh, the ship has been at sea for two weeks. You can still do crew chains, but subject to under the condition of XYZ everywhere. That complexity has just grown exponentially. Now you have to contend with all these subject to restrictions that are put in place in different ports and nations across the world. It is still getting it done. It's just much more um, difficult and unfortunately also much more expensive. It's a strain on the industry, but it does show that everything is relative, right? Because a year ago, I could have a discussion somewhere about how can we find $50 for a ticket from Delhi to Singapore. And today I have owners who call me and say, I don't care if it's $50,000, we can get these six people off from that point to do it. So I suppose everything is relative and you really have to, um, to learn to adjust your approach depending on the situation. It was interesting how people change to the situations. I mean, now you've got that number down to one and a half thousand. Are you confident that you can sort of get through that and then 
keep some sort of semblance of normality going forward now you've kind of adjusted to this situation? No, I'm not confident. The reason I'm not confident is that whereas early May, or mid-May up to um, mid-July, pretty much saw a one-way street of easing, relaxation of these very draconian rules that were in place early on in In the last few weeks, we have seen that easing is being rolled back in certain places. In Singapore is one such place, Hong Kong is another such example. And I don't know whether we're going to see many more waves or how this COVID-19 will play out globally. But if things get worse in terms of number of infections and fatalities globally, that could almost be over in further restrictions in terms of travel and port openings. I'm not confident at all that things will get easier from here. What I am sure about is that we now have the, if you will, the organizational readiness to think a bit more on our feet, adapt to a changing dynamic situation. But I fear also that what's happening now, I think there's still some 250 to 300,000 seafarers globally, which is something like 20% of the global seafaring contingent that are overdue. And many of them are overdue for more than a year. They're not just overdue on their contractual terms, they are overdue also on the legal terms. MLC is clear about that. And whereas seafarers have been very responsible and said, okay, no, we can't disrupt the supply chain. We can't disrupt the employability of the ship. We will sign this month by month extension of contract. I am worried that we are at a breaking point. In the next few weeks, we will see a large number of these seafarers that are overdue simply put down their tools when they come to that next extension of contract discussion and say, sorry, I can't do it anymore. And I'm not trying to be nasty here, but I'm fatigued, stressed out. I'm in no shape to continue to do my job. The responsible thing to do with that force is to say, stop. And if that happens, I mean, it's one thing to not be able to arrange crew change in most ports. It's another thing to then come to a port and suddenly a quarter of your people on board refuse to sign an extension of contract. You know, essentially renders that ship unseaworthy. Suddenly it doesn't have the safe manning to continue its voyage. And then what do you do? Ship is dead in the water or dead in the port as it is. Because you can't get new seafarers on board because of travel restrictions. You can't get the seafarers off, but they're no longer capable of doing their job. It may be uh, that that's what is needed sort of uh, to actually get the attention of policymakers and regulators around the world. Because as whereas many saying the right words, then on the ground, there are still far too many restrictions in place to allow the global supply chains to continue. I live in Hong Kong, but I'm, I'm as concerned as any other Hong Kongers about potential to get infected with a third wave. But at the same time, being a shipping professional, I also know that my ability to have stocked supermarket shelves, to have electricity when I flick the switch, to have medical supplies in the hospitals comes down to shipping functioning. And if we don't have this crew chase functioning, if you don't have crew chase going, and eventually that supply chain will break down. So we are all beneficiaries of shipping 
and we should be able to treat seafarers with the same dignity and respect as we treat doctors and nurses and other first responders, who I think we all understand have to go to work in this time of crisis because they're there to protect the rest of us. And so are our seafarers. They are there to make sure that we have the necessities through the crisis. And if crew change isn't safe the way it's functioning today, safe enough, then the response is not to curtail it, in my view. The response is to work together between regulators and industry to find protocols that are as bulletproof as possible so that we can move people. I hope you're enjoying the conversation between Marcus Hand and Bjorn Holgaard. I just wanted to interrupt to tell you that this episode of Hong Kong Focus has kindly been sponsored by Invest HK. Should you wish to discover more about them, then visit www.investhk.gov.hk. Right, now I want to take you back to the conversation. Here's Marcus. If you're looking forward and things like that, I mean, you mentioned like, for example, Korea, there was like, I say, a two-week quarantine period. Does that mean, is that perhaps where we're going to be looking at? That that's what you're going to require for things like crew change? It could be. I mean, you can ask yourself if a crew member who's leaving, let's say Mumbai, and he's had a COVID-19 test, tested negative within 48 hours of him departing. If he arrives in a place like Hong Kong, and in the airport, he also tests negative. So he gets another swab test as he goes through the airport. He sits down for six hours and waits. For the rest of people coming to Hong Kong, we would have to do a 14-day quarantine. You can ask yourself, does it make any sense for seafarers? They should rather go to the ship as soon as possible and move on. On the other hand, if that's what it takes as an industry, I'm inclined to think that that's better than nothing. I mean, presumably, as a responsible manager yourself, there's a lot of reasons you want the crew to you know going on board and so forth to be COVID-free and not have any problems with your ship as well, right? Absolutely. I've been talking to regulators about this, and I'm always saying, I can't imagine a shipping company who would send a relief on board without testing them for COVID-19 before leaving home. Because if you have a container ship, at $25,000 a day, and it gets quarantined for 14 days or three weeks because you had a COVID-19 infected person come on board who infected the others. It's a lot of money, right? And it's a crisis for the people as well. So I find it difficult to believe that responsible owners and managers would do that. On the other hand, I have no problem in seeing these demands, let's say, for COVID testing before departure, COVID testing on arrival, etc. I have no problem with seeing them very firm and also of uh, punishing anyone who violates these rules because we all want the safety to work for all of us. Again, you know, we and our families are living in these uh, communities and we don't want COVID-19, right? So we have to balance the need of the health of the community with the need of making sure that, that supply chain continues. At the same time, of course, there's the humanitarian side of the seafarers as well. As I said, they are actually, in many cases, responding to a call of duty. You know, I've seen seafarers who say, listen, I don't need to go on board. These are difficult times. But I understand that if I don't go on board and take the next assignment, 
then I've got a colleague somewhere who can't get off, and I've got a supply chain that's going to break down, a supply chain that is there for all of us. So in many cases, these people are actually responding to a call of duty and saying, you've got to uphold this so it works for all of us. But we have to remember that they are scared too. When they travel from their home country to ports of unsigning, they're worried that they're going to get infected on the way. They go through airports, they sit in, in planes, they sit in lounges, they touch all kinds of stuff on the way, and we have to make sure that they have all the protection they need. If some of them then get COVID-19 on the way, they really serve our supports, not our stigma. This is one of the things that I've seen in this uh, last few weeks, that, that society's main sea crew or air crew for new outbreaks in the community, we wouldn't blame the nurse who goes and takes care of the public sick if she gets sick. Because she's just responding to a call of duty and she's there to help us all. But similarly, when the seafarer is going on board a ship, he is doing a job that's important to all of us. He serves our respect and our bias. That's very true. Are you continuing to sort of take in ships, ships changing ownership and management? Is that sort of thing going on? A little bit. Um, I think the rate of change is probably half of what it was last year mm. before. So there's definitely sort of a sense of wait and see that goes both for ships that get sold or for other management and for ships that get bought or into management. The turnover is smaller than it used to be. Part of that is driven by crew change, difficulty in actually executing crew change. You, know, you buy a ship and you want a new crew to go on board to take over from the, from the seller's crew, but you can't arrange it. So that's part of the reason. The other reason being that in a situation where the world economy looks uh, pretty opaque and uh, you still have that technology overhang of what's going to win in terms of fuels and, and propulsion and uh, stuff in the next decade, I think many owners are basically taking a wait and see approach. I don't know if there's really are any future plans at the moment. I usually probably round this up with kind of like what you've got planned in terms of the future for Anglo Eastern. Uh, We've really done sort of an in-depth investigation into what would be the right way forward. And we are on a program to see pretty much the entire systems landscape by recent change over the next three years or so. But it is a transformation that's going to make us much more cyber secure, also on board the ships. It's going to recognize a world whereby ships are as connected as offices are today. It's also about saying whether well, ship and owner and charter will, instead of being white space in terms of information, between these elements of the supply chain, then we can pretty much in the same place at the same time. It will close the sort of knowledge gap and time gap between the information. So some of these things are happening, and that's, I suppose, one of the bigger programs we have running. Marcus and Bjorn, thank you. I think listening to Bjorn Hogard was fascinating and talking in more depth about how the fleet has had to be adapted with up-to-date technology can only help the fleets be more connected and together moving forwards. 
This episode is part of our Hong Kong Focus mini-series, which has kindly been brought to you by our sponsors InvestHK. Should you wish to discover more about them, then do visit www.investhk.gov.hk. We've really enjoyed bringing this mini-series covering Hong Kong, its challenges, its growth, and how they're doing different things within the industry. So please do head to Sea Trade Maritime News website where you'll discover more. And whilst you're on our website, I'd like to point out to you that over the coming weeks, we have a series of webinars where among a whole host of topics, we'll be looking at the logistics and infrastructure, sustainability and future fuels. But if you're looking for something more immediate, I'd really like to point you in the direction of our special reports. Now, thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. There will be more coming in the near future. So do make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now Amazon. So you'll be the first to hear the episode. Now, thank you, and I hope you have a good day.